I'm going to say good morning, and I want to hear you say good morning back like you're excited to be here, excited to be in God's presence and hear from God's Word. Good morning. So I am concluding this series called Ecclesia today, which is the Greek word for a called out assembly or congregation. It's what we are. And in this series, we have reviewed our commitment as a church, as a body here at Redeemer to worship, to grow, to serve, to make sure that those three are a part of our daily operation as an individual and as a part of this larger called out assembly and congregation. We were reminded in this series of our identity as chosen people, as a royal priesthood with priestly work to be done, that you are God's possession, that in order to be in his family, he had to purchase you. And we are called to be a living sacrifice, to constantly have our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit and Holy Scriptures, and to not conform to the patterns of this world. And last week, we were affirmed that although we are fragile and flawed vessels, like jars of clay, as Paul says, we still contain within us the presence of Christ. It's a miracle. For today, I've titled this sermon, Wage War. Wage War. There is a battle that the church is in. There is a battle that you are in. We are in the middle of a spiritual war zone, and there are two and only two kingdoms that are at conflict in this battle, the kingdom of darkness belonging to Satan, the kingdom of light belonging to the Lord Most High. If you are born again and you have faith in Christ Jesus, then you have a mortal enemy that wants you dead. He is a roaring lion as defined by scripture. He's looking around, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. Lions roar to express severe hunger pains or to intimidate their prey. He is a lion and he's out for blood. His agenda is very clear. It is no secret, we're told in scripture, that he is here to steal and kill and destroy. And he has declared an all-out war on your soul. Nothing would please him more than to completely demolish you. And you have absolutely, in your own strength and ability, no chance in this battle. You're helpless. We are defenseless. Is anyone encouraged by this sermon yet? Ephesians 6 describes this war in detail and in the same breath offers hope and instruction for our victory. So if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 6, if you forgot your Bible, there's a red one located most likely right underneath you. And Ephesians 6 verse 10 is on page 1824 in the red Bible. So here's the war in detail and in the same breath, the hope and instruction for victory. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The war. Therefore, Put on the full armor, not partial armor. You are vulnerable. 
with partial armor. Put on full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, but when, you may be able to to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the, notice he doesn't just shoot arrows, they're flaming arrows that he fires at you and you can extinguish them. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. This is our opponent. This is the inevitable war that we find ourselves in. This is the protective clothing that God makes available to us. This is the invitation to carefully follow the war strategy designed by Christ himself. This is how, when evil approaches, we stand. We're not knocked over. We're not defeated, but we stand firm. So in the context of ecclesia, I feel it is important as a called out assembly and congregation that we, not you and not you and not you as individuals only, but we collectively as the body of Christ and as a church family, that we stand together. It's not about you standing while someone else falls. It's about bearing one another's burdens and standing together in this world in this culture against darkness. So look around the sanctuary today. Literally. Go ahead. Look around the sanctuary today. Every single person in this service, every single person in the other service, every child in our nursery, every high schooler, And let me make this more personal. Everyone in this sanctuary, in this church family that's a believer is your brother or sister in Christ, adopted into the exact same family that you've been adopted into. To make it more personal, have you ever looked at your wife, your husband, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, as a sibling of the faith? And how might you look at them differently if you saw and acknowledged that as a Christ follower too, they are not just your mother, she's your sister. It's not just your daughter, she's your sister. We are siblings in the faith and every one of us has a unique story with countless peaks and valleys and plateaus. But each person that you sit amongst today that professes faith in Jesus Christ is your brother or your sister, your sibling. And they all have their own experiences, including many bruises from the front lines of this spiritual war. We've all been hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We are in this war together. Your elbow and my elbow are joined together. Everybody sitting next to you together right now. We are in this war together, focused and fully equipped. We have every resource we need because of the Holy Spirit to fight this war. And we are equipped to storm the gates of darkness. 
We have priestly work to be done, especially in this culture. I'm, I'm certainly not claiming that a church can exist without differences in perspective and opposing views. I want you to, to hear that that's not what I'm claiming. It doesn't exist. But the challenge that I bring to you today is this. We are most responsible with the gospel when we are unified as a body. We are most responsible with the gospel when we are unified as a body. Our efficiency as the change agent of this world is hindered by disunity and division and conflict. I'm not saying a church exists that's void of disunity and division and conflict because a church family is no different than your immediate family. Immediate families are messy. Immediate families are exhausting at times. If you wanted to say amen right there, somebody next to you might elbow you. Immediate families are exhausting. Andrea and I took our two oldest children to camp last month, and we got in this long line of families with their children, and we're standing there in the sun, and the kids are hot, and everybody's exhausted. We're all dehydrated, and we're waiting single file line to enter the gates of camp. And right there at the gates to make the line longer and the wait longer was the camp sign. And every good mother and father, you know what to do at the camp sign. You make your children stand there and take a picture. And then you text it to every extended family member. And then you Facebook it. And you tag people that don't even know your kids. They attended your shower. It's important. Everything our kids do, we want to celebrate. And Andrea and I got a good laugh because the family right in front of us sent their son and daughter and said, go stand under the sign. And we heard this mother say to the children the exact same thing we've said to our children hundreds of times. Put your arm around each other and smile and act like you like each other. (laughs) Put your arm around each other, smile, and act like you like each other. And Andrea and I were so pleased to know that it's not just us. But let's further prove my point. Raise your hand if this describes your home, your immediate family. Raise your hand if this describes your home. Perfect harmony. 120% agreement. Argument-free atmosphere. Constant bliss. The kids never talk back. No one raises their voice. Feelings are never hurt. No one sleeps on the couch. And doors are never slammed. Of course, this doesn't describe your home. It doesn't describe mine. Spouses aren't perfect and kids fight and feelings get crushed and drama unfolds, and if you're anything like me, you overreact. You speak before you think, and you get that instruction backwards. We're all flawed. Each one of us is flawed, and it's unavoidable, and I think to give us the benefit of the doubt, it's also unintentional. 
that we bring those flaws into a larger family, out of our immediate family and into this church family, into the family of God. So I'm not promoting that a conflict-free church exists. Actually, conflict resolution, if done biblically and with health and agreement and prayer and fasting and counsel from wise people, conflict resolution can be good for the body. It can strengthen us in our relationships and lead us to a deeper affection for one another. So it's not about being a conflict-free zone, but I'm sounding an alarm saying that we are most vulnerable in this spiritual war against the powers and principalities of darkness when we have people who we oppose or they oppose us, and it evolves from just opposing one another to becoming opponents. That's when we get in trouble. So there's a story of two monks who had lived in harmony for years, and one day one of the monks grew bored with the routine that they had, so he said, let's do something different. Let's do as the world does. Well, his fellow monk had been out of the world for so long he'd forgotten. So he asked, what does the world do? Well, for one thing, the world corals. His brother monk asked him, how does the world coral? So the other replied, see that stone? Place it between us and then say, That stone is mine. Wanting to accommodate his friend, he put the stone between them and he said, that stone is mine. The monk who suggested the coral paused for reflection and felt the compulsion of their years of friendship. So he said, very well, brother, that stone is yours, keep it. And so ended the coral. It's possible! Unity is possible in any setting, in any circumstance, but it requires intentional focus on our commonalities and our shared values. We have so many shared values. Why do we let little things break us apart and tear us apart? So I want to share three intentional ways in which we can cultivate deeper unity within our Christian relationships with our brothers and sisters. First is this, cultivate unity with our words. Cultivate unity with our words. Go ahead and say it, sticks and stones. Whoever said sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me is full of it. If you're like me, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will cripple my unstable and heavily dependent level of self-worth. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. On the contrary, Proverbs 12.18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. So our words are delivered to someone's ears like a sweet snack, or it can feel like a stabbing sensation. We can deliver a sweet snack or a stabbing sensation to those around us. So here are some filters that you can strain your words through as we consider whether or not to speak. Is it true? Is it necessary? And if it's true and if it's necessary, can I deliver it in a kind manner? And I'm looking at this, these three filters thinking, if I submitted every thought before it became a word to these three filters, how much less would I talk? 
How many times would this shut me up before I speak? And let me just be very clear and frank about something. Gossip is rarely true. Gossip is never necessary. And gossip is never kind. There is no room for that in this family. Proverbs 30, 34, 13 says, keep your tongue from evil. Pope Francis says, gossip at first is like candy and later on turns into poison. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If we ever have anyone else's name on our lips, it should be done in a way of affirmation, edification, and honor. Every single one of us have had someone talk badly behind our backs, and it feels horrible when you hear what people have said. But have you ever had someone come up to you and say, you'll never believe what somebody was saying the other, the other day about you, and then you hear all the honoring things that they were saying? What a shift in culture. What a shift in family dynamic. We cultivate unity with our words. Second, we cultivate unity with grace. When people say or do hurtful things, it's often because they're hurting. They're not mean, malicious people out to get you. Hurt people hurt people. And so if they're hurting, what's behind their actions? Have you've, as you've heard in this series, we are all flawed. We are all fractured like jars of clay. And every once in a while, our jar of clay bumps into another jar of clay. And we all fall all over the place and break. But when we remember that we are also broken in some way, we are easier on others who are broken. When we remember what Peter says, we're called out of darkness into wonderful light. The same person that hurt you was in the same darkness at some point as you were. Called into the same family as you've been called into. <clears throat> so my encouragement today is let's fight for grace. Let's fight for it. Let's marinate all of our conversations and relationships with grace. Two weeks ago, I encouraged us, let's not conform to the patterns of this world, but at the same time, not condemn those that do. So on the contrary, there is no expectation on you as a part of the family of Christ or the family of Redeemer Covenant Church to be perfect. No expectation on you to be perfect. Perfection doesn't exist without the righteousness of Christ placed upon you by the merciful hand of God and the work of the Holy Spirit each and every day. No expectation to be perfect. So even though we walk with Christ every day, we all experience my not so finest moment moments. We all have them. So let's offer more grace in those moments when people are having their not my finest moments because I've got them too. We must in our interactions with our siblings in the faith, be humble to admit our inadequacies to one another, to humbly go to somebody and confess our sin, our wrongdoing, and, and humbly ask for their forgiveness. We also must be ready to offer grace to one another. To do so, to offer grace to someone is to look at them and say, you know what, I don't see you for your faults. I see you as a new creation. I'm not going to see you for your wrongdoing. I see you as a new creation in Christ. So we cultivate unity with our, our words. We cultivate unity with our grace. And third, we cultivate unity with our love. 
This is the cornerstone in the church's war against the kingdom of darkness. John 13, 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, God allows the world to look at Christians and judge whether or not we're truly Christians. By the way, we love each other. Not by the size of our church building, not by the frequency of our church attendance, not by the amount of our tithe, not by the eloquence of our prayers, not by the religious duties that we observe. The final test of our discipleship is whether or not we love others well. And how important is this call? There are people that are on the outside of the family of God looking at you, constantly watching you. They know you're a believer because of your bumper sticker. They know you're a Christ follower because of all the Bible verses hanging in your office. They hear the Christian music playing. They know that you're a Christ follower. Do your words, does your grace, does your love further invite them to be interested in Christ? People will watch us and their interest in the gospel, the message of Christ, their, their desire to learn more, it hangs in the balance of the way that we love one another. Professor Donald Carson, professor of New Testament, says, help us grasp the importance of this, this new command. It is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate it, yet profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. With a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say, this side of the second coming of Christ, I am perfectly keeping the basic stipulation of the new covenant. We all have got to work on this in ourselves and as a family. We are at war constantly. It never stops. The church has marching orders into the darkest places on this planet. But before we are ever effective in those places, we must be unified here in this place, in our place of worship. So my challenge today, how can we all commit to a deeper level to cultivate unity through our words, our grace, and our love? Would you bow your heads? Ponder that for a moment. How might you cultivate unity? through your words, through the grace that you offer others, through the love that you have. I want to offer two more challenges. In the six o'clock hour this morning, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that this is a difficult message to hear for anyone who's been wounded by the church. Maybe a church from your past. Maybe this church. Maybe you've considered leaving the faith because of how Jesus' followers have treated you in the past. So I humbly petition 
please don't place the misbehavior of any Christ follower on Christ himself. Give Jesus another try. Give the church another try. My second challenge is to anyone who is here with a genuine interest in relationship with Jesus. Maybe you've been on the fence for a long time. Maybe you know a lot about the gospel, but it's never transitioned from your head to your heart. And you feel prompted by the Spirit. It's time to jump in. It's time to surrender. It's time to live out this relationship with Jesus. If that's you, I wanna tell you that we wanna walk with you during this important time of your life. We have staff and volunteers up here today and all throughout this week, you are more than welcome to walk right in, speak with any of us if you have questions about Jesus, if you want someone to pray with you, to talk further about what salvation is, make sure you have a Bible on hand. That's our commitment to you. The interest you have in Jesus today doesn't have to stop there. We wanna walk with you through this. Can we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that your word teaches us and trains us. It molds us, inspires us, convicts us, challenges us. It realigns us on the path in which we're meant to live. Lord, help us all to cultivate this unity as a family, a church family, the family of Christ around the world. Help us to do our part to cultivate unity with our words, to speak life, to speak truth, to speak honor. Help us to cultivate unity through the forgiveness that we show others. Father, forgive me. I'm sorry, Lord, for the times that you have forgiven me, and in the same breath, I haven't forgiven someone else. Teach us to love, Lord. Teach us to love as you have loved us. Forgive us, Lord, forgive me. And the times that I haven't loved with a heart big enough. Help us to feel the gravity today that there are people who are interested in the gospel, and they'll make their decision based upon our actions and our love for one another. Help us to feel the weight of that responsibility. Unify us in every way, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship.